Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. West Bam, Maximilian Lentz. Max, hello. As you know, I'm Steve Blame, or Stephen James, or Steve. So there are six of us. <laughs> on this little yeah. Zoom call, which is good. Now, we know each other a bit. And during my uh, MTV days, we had the occasional meet where I would interview you and then we would go out. And I can remember about three nights of total excess. And I promised myself, well, actually, I promised myself that I might talk about them later, especially the one in Berlin. But you probably yeah, don't yeah, even remember wonderful. that. But yeah. firstly, I wanted to talk about... Um, I mean, this is really going back early into, into your childhood. Because if I think about my childhood, I had extremely, in some ways, conventional parents in a dysfunctional family. But I was very conventionally brought up. And yeah, okay. 
you were in a way in a in a very opposite type family in a very unconventional family can you tell me what your parents were like and what it was like being a child of that type of parent well uh, well you know there's this um, special german thing you know like i think that all that hippie thing in the 60s when i was a small kid at the end of the 60s early 70s um well, uh, uh, all the, the you know you know all these stories about the sixty eighters they call them in German you know 68 uh, and and they were like you know since since um, their parents were like the people of that war and the Nazi times they were convinced they had to build a different future and ever since the Nazi regime was so about authoritarian stuff they decided they had to go the exact opposite way anti-authoritarian which in a way is kind of a you know and that's what i say about this whole generation it's kind of an extremist thing you know and the opposite to from my view today of the opposite of nazism would be anti-extremism but it was kind of extreme so you um, give you a little example you were like invited to because like young boys if they are uh, allowed to do anything you know what we you would enjoy doing was like start fires in the house you know in the uh, <laughs> in the bathroom you know in the bathtub we would put all the papers in there and light a fire you know because that was really fun, you know, or even, you know, like, um, uh, to some extent, I remember there were like weird stories, we were like, uh, like uh, throwing with um, cats and stuff and catching them and stuff like that. And from my view of today, I'd say you tell a child, don't do that, that animal is panicking you know don't do it you know it's torture for me the biggest culture shock was when i came to school and suddenly there was rules and you know uh when i was six years old and i was this hippie child and i came into school and they said sit down now do this do that so when you say was, hippie you know what comes yeah. into my head is that it's a cliche but what comes into my head yeah. is you know uh sex or free love and yeah. you know smoking dope and uh, just being free with everything, basically, was it? Yeah, yeah. Was that yeah, yeah. part of it as well? Well, well, well. The kids weren't like part of. That. No, obviously not. Yeah, but but I mean, like, the adults you know, were. <laughs> yeah, well, well in, in those days, I know other stories. You know, where you know that even haunts the Greens in Germany that they had like hippie-ish kind of people that would say, "Well, if the child has a sexuality, and you know, it it wouldn't go into that with us." But you know, like they, they were like, also that was kind of a part of that hippie-ish thing, you know. By the way, my mother hates it when I, I say we were hippies because now she's old, she's over 80 years old and now she talks about hippies the way the old Nazis would talk about hippies, you know, these dirty, lazy people, you know. Now, you know, like all the old hippies kind of don't want to be called old hippies, not old at least my mother, you know, and now she doesn't like it. But uh, so, um, so from my mother's point of view, she wasn't a hippie at all.
you were brought up in a sort of very culturally, I would call it in a sense, privileged background. I mean that in a pos positive yeah, way, exactly. because your mother was an artist or still is yeah. an artist. Your father was a professor in the at the yeah. university. So yeah. there are in, intellectuals and also culturally aware. Yeah. Um, how did that how did that initially rub off on you? What what was the the surroundings, the sort of cultural surroundings that you had? Yeah, yeah well, you know, like um, actually, that I'm quite. That's the best part of my uh, my education, so to say. Um, if anti-authoritarian can be education at all, but um, uh, this, uh, uh, well, uh, being. Um, inspired to uh, open yourself up to new ideas and also that hippie-ish kind of belief you can change the world and do something and ignore all the old world and all the old rules and all the old stuff and come up with something revolutionary, you know? And that kind of like stuck with me uh, when I was, uh, you know, a teenager, I then logically turned into a punk rocker, you know, because that was the next kind of development of like, uh, yeah, well, we are so free. We are even against hippies, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, and for me, punk rock was the next kind of like musical revolution. And here's an example. I had this concept of freedom in my mind that, and that fitted kind of to the punk concept that you don't have to learn to play an instrument to play an instrument, you know, kind of, I don't, and that's, that's with me until today. I would, I admire musicians that play Wagner in an orchestra and, you know, and they, they uh, uh, rehearse for like five hours a day. But personally, I've never rehearsed. I've always, I like to do things as, as I have the idea and I don't, like the praxis idea, but I like the conceptual idea, the idea you can make something up and revolutionize anything. Kind if of they like have expectations of you, because if they, you know, you're saying they're hippies, and I know uh, uh, that this sort of feeling is they, they're letting you find your way, in a sense, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, you're yeah, giving. Yeah. But they, they must have had some expectations of you. And when you talk about when you're young and you set fire to things in the bathroom, you're obviously yeah. trying to get a reaction out of them. Was there anything that yeah. you did that got a reaction out of them? I only remember one time, like when we were, had like kind of a discussion, then we were like around 11 years old and then we kind of destroyed a cupboard or something, you know, to see whether that works out. And then I know my mother burst into tears for one time because, she, you know, she couldn't be, you know, that whole uh, special, I guess, with boys, destruction and this anger energy is something really that comes natural. And that's anti-hippie-ish, you know? So uh, um, the hippies have the belief um, uh, well, it's all education, you know, these Nazi generation people have been miseducated, you know, and if you educate a boy to play with puppets and the, maybe even the girl to play with guns just to turn it around, that will work. But I don't think from now, uh, nowadays, uh, 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 from uh, knowledge, I wouldn't agree because they then later found out that even with primates, you know, 
if you give like a primate kid, a male one, the, to choose between a gun and a puppet, he goes for the gun and the primate girl goes for the puppet, you know? So that seems to be quite even beyond being a, you know, that's that's a mammal, you know? And that's uh, that seems to be kind of very much engraved into the DNA. Aggression, that's what I believe is, a, a, especially of the, the boys, obviously also the girls, is, is a part of that, you know? So, um, but you went for the boxing gloves, didn't you? I did all fighting sports. I did Aikido, uh, Taekwondo, and uh, and boxing. In the end, boxing was the roughest, you know. Yeah, but they must have wondered the why why you were training. You know, why were you doing boxing? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what my mother said. She said, "Well, you know, um, I never hit you, and all you do is go <laughs> go join a boxing club." You know, that 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 was. She was kind of kind of smiling, but kind of. Well, what a weird world, you know? The, the, so you, you don't want your kids to be ever, you know, brutalized or anything done to them and you held yourself back even in the moments of biggest frustration or provocation by the kids, you, you know? Um, and, but that one thing I remember when I had kids, you know, because my mom, mother would always kind of like make it into a, a sacrifice that she, although she was beaten as a kid, she wouldn't beat her kids. Now, obviously, I'm, I wasn't beaten as a kid, but I never felt it was a sacrifice that I didn't uh, hit my kids, you know, I never did. And, and I didn't feel they could be thankful for it or anything like that, you know? So, uh, thank yeah. God we've got that out of the way because that could have been a difficult one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so right. listen, but what was the music that they listened to at home? Well, you know, like I, I, dif I remember like really different things. Obviously one thing that has like quite an influence on me was like Rolling Stones, my father, and that like the loudness, you know, when you're a kid, it hurts your ears. I, I was quite shocked, you know. In those days, kids would go in cars, you know, they wouldn't get beaten and we would be hippies, but they wouldn't drive with a safety belt. Parents would smoke in their car, you know, and, and all of that. So, uh, and p uh, parents would listen to music very loud or make kids stay up until tw two o'clock in the morning or stuff like that. So, uh, which I've, yeah, kind of like that makes up for the not getting beat up, you know. But uh, um, uh, what, what, yeah, well, Rolling Stones. I from the sixties, I seem to remember like I can only tell about the things that had an influence on me. I remember like because probably they listened to more, you know. But what stuck in my head was this weird like Brazilian song, the super soft one, you know, yeah, from Ipanema. Yeah. It's kind of like weird, kind of making, uh, you know, like even made me afraid, you know, kind of like. It felt scary to me, you know, some disco songs felt scary to me. Do the hustle, you know, I remember and that wasn't like a favorite of my parents, but I remember like sitting in the back of the car. Um, of my aunt, and in the radio they were playing "Do the Hustler," very 
kind of like, I guess, positive song. It got me so scared and so much aware that one day I had to die, you know, as a kid. I don't know why. So music always had a very strong influence on me and in some surprising ways. Just so I uh, want to move on slightly, because your father knew jo Joseph Boyce, didn't he? That's quite a, a thing that um, my parents met at the Art uh, Academy of Düsseldorf, which at the time was probably the most influential in all of the world. And they were uh, uh, co-students with in one class with Gerhard Richter and Siegmar Polke were like some of the most important artists of the, you know, of the times to come. And, and Josef Beuys, uh, uh, um, I don't know, I might have met him as a kid even. My, 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 and my father always said, well, later when Beuys was so famous, well, you know, when Beuys was talking to me, he always made so many drawings and I wish I kept all these drawings, you know? But uh, 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 so all you were left with was a little drawing with... Uh, saying to Otto, that's my father, Josef, and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, and we found, found a drawing of Sigmar Polke in one of the old uh, cupboards, you know? So um, anyway, but, you know, for example, Boris, I realized at the time he seemed like a weirdo to me, but he's even talked with a very similar accent to my father, you know, this Rhinelandish kind of accent. Uh, and um, today, I'd say, yeah, Joseph Beuys is one of these, you know, what can you expect of an artist? Today, I go on the motorway and I see a lot of stones by the side, you know? And I think, yeah, that's art, it's beautiful. And that way to look at the world, to me, uh, through my father comes from Joseph Beuys, you know? so like. The whole idea, that's for me, uh, one of the central points I'd say in my life uh, is the boys defined art as uh, um, changing something. So uh, any type of change. So if you um, uh, uh, um, make yourself a cup of tea, you change a little bit. So that's art, you know, kind of like um, if you made yourself a dinner and you... Uh, um, how do you say it? You stir, stir it. Yes. And I'm, you know, ever since I, all these weird days, I, I haven't practiced my English enough. Anyway, you stir it up, stir up your uh, chocolate. It's art. You're an artist. Everybody is an artist. That's such a beautiful. And seriously, if I stir up my, or if I scramble my eggs and I put them on a plate, I say, how beautiful. So all that background is really with me. It's, it's true. So in that way, you know, I've, I've got things to criticize like everybody about the parents and what mistakes they made, like educating you. But in a lot of ways, I feel I'm, I'm quite a child of my parents. That's true. You're also more than that in a sense, because you you also had a mentor and someone that was really stayed with you you know most of your yeah. uh, of your life and i presume he was connected to the family william william rutger william yeah and how what was his relationship to the family was he a family friend or was he a, an actual relation 
Uh, yeah, yeah, well, uh, he, uh, he came in, um, into the uh, family through my father. He was an assistant to my father at Art uh, Academy in, in uh, PH in Münster. And uh, later he became uh, uh, the spouse of my mother and they even married later on. So, <clears throat> um, and with me, he always seemed to have like, you know, that's my, my impression. I might be completely wrong, you know, when I say it, but like, uh, I always get the feeling from my parents that I was like the golden boy. That kind of, this might be completely wrong, you know? Maybe they thought nothing like that, or they thought my small brother was the golden boy or my, my small sister or whatever, or my big sister. But, so there was four of us. So, but that was the, the vibe I got from them. And kind of this was quite taken on by William. William kind of like discovered me as a special person, but it wasn't quite uh, um, clear what uh, my speciality would be, you know? <laughs> so like, but he, he, he took me on the road. So in the early eighties, when I was a teenager, he was quite into all that political fight against, uh, you know, what eventually became the Greens against uh, uh, nuclear energy, you know, Gorleben and stuff. And also kind of like, you know, legalize it, obviously. And then um, um, and then with some sympathy, even like for like the fight against the state, the Bada Meinhof group, you know, some some sympathy for that. So in the early 80s, he would take me to the earliest um, alternative press in Frankfurt. There were like, you know, the, uh, what be eventually became the Tats uh, in Germany, you know, came from the alternative press, a product of the 70s, early 80s. So I was drawing political little things against atomic energy and stuff, you know, and I even uh, did a a book at the time that and then already uh, with my drawings about school that I hated school you know it was called school horror school horror you know and that had all my little drawings about school about my hate of school so typical anti-authoritarian so and at the time uh, William was already my manager so and then when I was 17, I was in, uh, William was living in Berlin I, and I joined him because anti-authoritarian, I didn't want to join the German army, you know, and in West Berlin, you didn't have to go. In those days, I, I, the nightlife, like ever since I was 15 with the new wave clubs and even tramping to, you know, hitchhiking to Berlin, Nightlife was, was a big thing for me and kind of like then uh, William introduced me to some clubs and kind of like I that's when I got the idea DJing that's a fascinating job you know? yeah, just to just to go back from that because you talked about yeah. punk earlier yeah, okay. and you yeah. were a punk in Munster before yeah. you you went to Berlin yeah. And you were probably one of the first punks in Monster, weren't you? So it must have been, yeah, yeah, wasn't, yeah, it, right. wasn't it quite a difficult thing to be 
Uh, I, I, to be honest, I can tell you a story about me that in, I think, the year that Elvis died, was it 76 in the summer uh, or 77? Yeah. I, I, 77, yeah, I think. I worked in um, a factory in the summer and it was yeah. full of teddy boys. And there was yeah, me yeah. and this guy who was completely a punk and me who loved punk music. And when Elvis yeah. died, we laughed and they beat us all yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, similar, you know but because I'm, you know, Münster is in the heart of the British sector of uh, of uh, West Germany, you know, Northern Westphalia was even like a British invention, you know, after the Second World War. And that's another major influence. I mean, growing up as a kid in Münster, you're like musically socialized by John Peel from BFBS and kind of like the also the soldier people that were like hanging out in most bars and kind of like kind of a rough neighborhood to grow up in, you know? So by the same time that punk influence was obviously a English influence, by the same time, you know, you had the worst enemies of punks in your neighborhood, British soldiers, and they would always like, you know, we're gonna fucking kill you because you know why you're a fucking punk. You know, it was all like that. I've some experiences like that, you know, and and they say like, okay, you know the specials, you know madness. These were like scar groups of more like Skinner kind of people, but we also listened to that. They said, name me ten songs now. <laughs> so back in those days, I mean, um, what I take from those years is like the importance of music, you know that, you know, like if you listen to the wrong type of music and therefore have the wrong type of haircut, you know, you might get killed for it, you know, that underlines the big role that music in those days played. It does, I think in youth culture, it always does to some extent, but I feel that's one thing that has changed over the decades, you know. Uh, Today, people have more things to identify with. Back in those days, music was, was played a major role, you know? I mean, I would say it's more homogenized today. And then back then there were more different types of styles, but you only belong to one groove in a sense at a time. Do you know what yeah, I mean? It yeah. was like the 70s had some great variety of music from, yeah. you know, from all sorts of music, but you tended towards one thing and then moved on to the next thing yeah. um and as you said you were a punk back then but you were also in bands weren't you you were yeah, you were yeah. active and playing and weren't you a drummer i was everything you know i was nothing and everything so because you know as i say you wouldn't rehearse so it's hard to say somebody who doesn't rehearse to play the basses he basses somebody who doesn't rehearse to play the drums, but he still does, you know, is he a drummer, you know? And William got me my first um, uh, cock synthesizer, you know, uh, then I was 14. And so I, I joined, joined that, because like punk rock to me and my homies, you know, in the very beginning, um, it wasn't a, a working, you know, some people say like, why, uh, you know, how do you come from punk rock to techno? That's completely opposite. In those days, in the early days of German new wave, Neue Deutsche Welle punk rock, you had, 
it was a thing introduced to German society more by intellectuals from Düsseldorf again, rather than it was a working class, you know, that British kind of like UK subs, um, Sham 69, if the case are you not, you know, oi, 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 you know, that was, so that was kind of like, we had some sympathy for that, but we were listening to more like groups like Wire, and then a lot of like, you know, we, we were, had some like pogo hits, but by the same time were experimental, you know? Uh, and so like, for me, although looking back, I, I'd say, I have to agree to David Bowie saying, well, uh, the punk is a great thing, but I miss the music. I, I, at the time, I wouldn't have understood what he meant, you know? But I understand now, yeah, that whole you know in the end it was you know yeah yeah wow it it was rather looking back it was like more tending to the 50s to some extent the simplicity of the original you ain't nothing but a hound dog or something you know like it was it wasn't what i felt at the time there was a revolution in in music it wasn't exactly a musical revolution but then again, people like Daniel Miller, you know, Fat Gadget, the early Depeche Mode, uh, uh, um, Throbbing Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire, these were all like fairly uh, um, experimental electronic groups. And so, uh, so uh, the the uh, the step from 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 uh, that understanding of punk rock to dance music wasn't that far. How old were you when you went to Berlin? This was a semester that you had free or you took off to go to Berlin and visit William, wasn't it? And you were you were still at no, school. No, I went to school in, in Berlin uh, and I loved it. It was, um, I, I must say like there was half a year, but then due to the different systems, schooling systems in Berlin and Westphalia, I would have stayed in Berlin straight, you know, but they would have made me go one, I would have, because of the different system, what I've had to repeat a whole year. And then I decided, and you know, and I listen, always listen to my parents and they said, well, everybody has to get a, a high school degree, you know? So, and I didn't want to do one more year. So I stayed only half a year and then finished my school in Münster, you know? And then went back to Berlin. But what was your impression of Berlin? Because in those days, of course, this is pre, Berlin yeah. Wall coming down yeah. and Berlin yeah, yeah. was a very different and special yeah. and unique yeah. place in the world. So could yeah. you sort of describe yeah, yeah. it to me in terms of how you felt about it as a very young man yeah. going there and seeing Berlin? Yeah, yeah well, that was uh, early in the, when I was 15, I was in Berlin for the first time on my own with my punk rock fans, friends. My punk rock friends were a little bit older than me. So like I was the youngest uh, and we went by uh, uh, hitchhiking, partly by train, um, especially through East Germany, we took the train, you know, uh, and, then, uh, and then we ended up in this island, this fascinating island, you know, um, that from the first time I went there and I came from Bahnhof Zoo, you know, and I read Wir Kinder from Bahnhof Zoo, from Christiane yes. F and stuff. So that story, that city, you know, the wall city, you know, there was this famous song by Duff, um, Kebab Träume in der Mauerstadt, 
uh, uh, which was all about Berlin, you know. Um, so there was a place um, uh, of craving and of fantasizing about it, and um, um, and uh, and from the first day I was there. In those days, it was like this island that was kept by the Allies against Russia, basically, and as like a forefront to like push Western propaganda into the Eastern Bloc, you know, which I think uh, turned out to be very useful in the end, you know. And I realized, looking back, I was a part of that, you know, and I probably did serve my country more as a DJ in West Berlin than as a Bundeswehr soldier, you know. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. One thing Nick Cave said about Berlin is that he gave him the confidence to do yeah. what he wanted to do and not give yeah, a shit yeah, yeah. about what other people yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. yeah Did Berlin have that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I think that is the thing that Berlin has always had and still has today. I think, and now... Uh, with my now that I'm a little older and more wise, I'd say that story begins way before the 60s. That story begins probably with uh, Friedrich der Große, um, that Prussian king, who probably was a gay guy who kind of like had this kind of also this idea. Well, you know, everybody should live the way they want to, and he has this very famous quotation. Jeder soll nach seiner Fasson glücklich werden. So, uh, um, and that kind of like, then he had all these people that were persecuted in France, the Hugonotten, these people uh, for their religion and their beliefs said, well, join me here in Prussia. You can do it. And he invited Voltaire to his court. And uh, so he, he was uh, kind of like, by the same time he founded the tradition of German militarism, uh, which eventually led to that incredible military power that started World Wars. But then again, he was in a good way, the founder of this, come to Berlin and live and be happy the way you want to be happy, you know? So that's quite co contradictory uh, traditions that I, th I think he founded. William sort of opened doors for you, but he also clearly you had this potential to do things and to yeah, do and yeah. to take risks and do uh, different things, um, and, and including writing um, an article where you described what the future yeah. of the DJ would be and what the future yeah. of cover art as being art. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here comes another story. There was, you know, I talked about my early drawings in the uh, political far left alternative press. One of those guys uh, uh, was like living in Frankfurt, um, a Latvian guy named Indulis Bilzens. And he was kind of like a, a impresario to William and he liked William. And William brought me in. And kind of like uh, Indulis always stuck around 
And he, he, he had quite an influence as well on William and also on me. And in fact, you know that what I'm very happy now that this manifesto at the time was released, I had written it for myself, only for myself. And I'd forgotten it in William's car. Now this guy in Dulles found it and he said, wow, that, that sounds interesting. A DJ as the musician of the future that plays a, a more minimal kind of really underground music. And it will be the pop music of the future, but also the underground of the future. Mind you, like in 84, you didn't have techno or house or any of that. You know, you had disco and you had new wave disco, but you didn't have the idea. Also, you had hip hop, but hip hop was about the rapper and stuff. <clears throat> uh, uh, but uh, the idea that the DJ himself would become the artist, that, that was kind of revolutionary. To me, it came natural because, as I say, from my parents' background, Whatever you do is kind of art. So for me to see my DJing as an art form was easier than for other guys, you know? For them, it was a job. They would talk about uh, next, uh, I think next month, this record will be big and, uh, you know, uh, and I will uh, program this and I will, you know, and look at the, uh, uh, the record reviews and well, you know, and talk to my boss about, uh, you know, the next beach party and all of that crap, you know? So in, in that world that I came into, the disco world, you know, uh, all these ideas at the time were completely new and alien, but I would have, I wouldn't have, I, I, I didn't sh uh, um, look for anybody to, uh, 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 to uh, release this text of mine. Um, but Indulis found it uh, in, the, in the car, read it, and said, oh, wow, this is like a manifesto. We have and he gave it to a friend of his uh, who had at the time an avant-garde uh, 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 newspaper called Der Neger. Uh, uh, and they... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was them that kind of like brought it to the public audience. And it was also and under, under Westphalia Bambata, wasn't it? Yes, so, exactly. So right. this, this is obviously Westphalia, the part of Germany where yeah. you're from, where Munster yeah. is. And Bambata from Africa, Bambata. And yeah. this is where your name, Westbam, came yeah. from. But yeah. 
a change of name. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm my real name is Stephen James, and my stage name, which I changed to be on MTV, was yeah. Steve Blame. And I've had a ton of therapy in my life. And when I talk to therapists, they always say that when you change your name, you develop a second personality. So you yeah. have a different personality. So I I have a different personality yeah. to Steve Blame, yeah. which I think is the one that gets into trouble. And we talk about that nightclub a bit later. And, and what happens? All the blame for it. It gets no? the blame for it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, exactly. So who is West Bam in relation to <laughs> Maximilian Lentz? Yeah, well, kind of like West Bam. is funny. It's re really a, a name that developed, kind of like. Um, when I came to Berlin, you know, people in West Berlin, uh, at the time there was no Aussies around. Well, they were around, but behind the wall somewhere, you know, hidden. So people would always blame the West Germans. So the worst word in, in West Berlin was Vessis, you know? That was a bad word because Aussies, they didn't get bothered by Aussies, but by those West German tourists. So for me, again, that's my anti-Autorian thing to say like, well, <clears throat> I come from Westphalia. So I, I put the West in my, my, my name even, you know. <clears throat> that was kind of a provocation at the time. So when I um, started playing at the Metropole, which was the big gay club in Berlin, again, that was another big underground that you didn't have, probably worldwide you didn't have such a big and uh, quite crass gay scene as, as that scene in, in Berlin at the time. When I played there, uh, I changed my name from Westphalia Bambata to, at first I was West Bam with a B at the end, and then it changed to West Bam, you know? And that, yeah, well, it's kind of a weird name, I guess, you know, and I'm not even sure, you know, I think at the time it, it was not clear to me, but clear from my name, I would never have a career in the West, but rather in the East, because West sounds good to the East, more to, than to the West, yeah? So, uh, uh, and it sounds, I, I, I realize, like, when Americans hear that name, they're like, oh, that's a weird name. They prefer somebody we call Paul van Dyck or Armin van Buren, you know, that's, that's named. So, uh, 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 so a lot of, uh, so you kind of, when you give yourself a name, I think unconsciously you decide upon your faith to some extent, you know, and I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not upset at all, you know, because deep in my heart, also, being a historic person, I always thought I could do better in the East than in the West world, you know. And I, until today, I think the heart of rave music beats more in the East than in the West. I think I want to come to one, one point that actually connects to that, because the 80s for me in Britain, which is very different yeah. from in Berlin, but the 80s yeah, yeah, yeah. for me in Britain were really dominated by... It, you know, it's unemployment, social unrest, uh, yeah, homophobia, yeah. sexism, misogyny. Yeah. It was, you know, there was a, a, a pile of shit going on. Yeah. And at the same time, there was an absolute 
amazing amount of great music during the early 80s yeah, when you yeah. came to the late 80s and then yeah. you know acid house and techno and all these yeah. um uh, different i i think they're sort of lifestyle genres came into being they change yeah. the society or they came at the time that society was changing now you played you know as you just mentioned in the metropole you played in a gay club and yeah. in in part of the 80s and i remember that in the early 80s i felt comfortable as a gay man in gay clubs yeah. in the late 80s it was okay to go to you know a techno house whatever a warehouse type event where they played that sort of music mm -hmm. um and it was very mixed and it was very much more of of a yeah, sort of yeah. what we see today as a modern society where we're all together yeah. and we don't yeah. just identify into our little groups yeah. how was that in berlin and how did that relate to east and west yeah well th that kind of like uh, is very interesting because at the time i realized the, the metropole, when, before I started DJing, uh, and I was just a pupil away in the west of uh, West Berlin, uh, my classmates uh, would rave about the metropole. So the metropole was, although it was a gay club, at the time it already had a cult following of straight people, kind of like the, the gay crowd was like the host, and it was their music and their culture, but it had kind of clicked onto weird, uh, a weird kind of smaller crowd of uh, uh, suburban teenage people who kind of like like this kind of larger, this posing, this the gay thing, the and like like myself, the energy, you know. So um, I think Berlin was one of the places. I, I remember my, my girlfriend at the time said to me, uh, um, are you gay? Uh, and um, that was the first time I heard it in Münster. I never heard anybody talk, talk about gay people. It was a more normal thing. Like gay people were more a part of it. And the, 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 the question wasn't, wasn't critical or anything. It was just for interest, you know? Uh, so, um, I think that the divide wasn't as deep in Berlin because Berlin, everybody should be happy the way they're happy. That was the vibe always. So the divide between gay and straight people uh, wasn't as bad as it was in uh, most other places, I believe. And that kind of translated into, you know, then um, in the mid 80s, where this Macht der Nacht kind of, where I started playing house music, and on the record night, we had 8,000 people. West Berlin was empty. They were all in our tent, you know? And I played this music that there wasn't a scene for house music or for techno-ish beats. But from the Metropole days, there was a school, a school of, um, of that kind of energy that it felt, you know? And I always saw house techno in the high energy disco tradition. You know, and basically that kind of like developed from, especially for example in Chicago, from this black gay ghetto thing, translated into a, a more major crowd. And then, you know, the girls would come. And when the girls come of, after the while, you know, the boys come. And so the kind of like it, um, that music in a uh, open and that whole culture 
starting with a gay uh, culture, yeah, it helped to change society, I believe. You mentioned before also about changing on, society. One little, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of energy. I need uh, to get Okay, my power up. Can I get it? Yeah, okay. power up. One, one, one second, one second. No, I'm going to leave you running. That's what we do on this podcast. Okay. Ah, oh, now we're safe. Okay. We're back on again, are we? Okay, good. We're back on, yeah. Yeah, what I wanted to say is that you mentioned earlier about the work you did in, you know, inverted commas, for the German government, for the West, yeah, in terms yeah, yeah. of, you know, bringing down the wall and bringing yeah, societies yeah. together. But it's, 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 it's not a joke, is it, really? It's something that really is fundamentally true, that that played a role. Can you also explain what role that played and what connection did it make to the young people in the East at that time behind the Iron Curtain? Yeah, well, that part, you know, I always had the tendency to believe music can do something so like in a um, in a political way and the best thing music can do is free your mind you know the best music frees your mind so even in 87 you remember uh, uh, Gorbachev and Perestroika due to Indulis Bilzin who was Latvian at the time it was a part of the Soviet Union we got this invitation to play in Russia, uh, not, not Russia, Soviet Union. Latvia wasn't Russia, so, uh, Soviet Union. So- uh, Was that in that, Riga? That's Riga. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a legendary gig. And we did like two or even three events at the time. And in those days, I mean, that they were testing, what can we do now? Is Perestroika about opening up? And I was a little part of that in, in Riga because they, they were like looking for their kind of freedom from and hoping to uh, be able to break away from Soviet Union at the time, which eventually happened. But at the time they were still a part of it. And then, uh, then again, there was a Russian group uh, from Riga who saw me perform uh, from, uh, sorry, from St. Petersburg. They were called Pop Mechanics and they performed that night in Riga and they saw me and then we did a gig together. They asked me and they said, yeah, that's great scratching and you know, mixing stuff. So I, I was mixing Zig Zig Sputnik into that Russian band live on stage and, and so on. So, um, so that's only to say, yeah, well, kind of like that, that whole changing the world to me with, by music took place again, more in the East than in the West. You know, in West Germany, West Berlin, in America, you have a lot of trends and they go by and they something, you know, but that music at that very special time, I'm not saying, you know, that brought down the wall, but uh, did something that is over the average of what pop music usually does, you know? And to come back to Berlin, well, there were all these radio shows on Sender Freies Berlin, you know, the free, you know, the uh, transmitting from uh, the West right into the East, you know, and all these kids in East Berlin would listen to these shows and they would fantasize about that, you know, the little club that I took you to in 89 before the war came down, UFO, you know, which happened, as you might remember, to be 
quite empty at the time, you know, but for the East German kids, that was a place that they would dream to one day, maybe, but they wouldn't even hope to dream. They could join that and, you know, dance to acid music and be really crazy and free, whereas they live under this oppressive, oppressive system that holds them down and keeps them away from it. But so like that kind of like craving for it, that was the root was planted with the music, with the radio shows, obviously. And um, well, and the, the proof of what I say is um, that after the coming weekends, after the wall came down, the UFO suddenly burst, you know, with was bursting with people. It was like overcrowded, you know, before, in 89, you know, there had been acid in 88 that had been on the cover of Bravo and it was like kind of like a major kind of pop trend even in Germany and England even more. But kind of there was in West Berlin that was going down, you know, was on the way out, you know, because there was no real use for it, you know, and it was just, yeah, you could dance to that, but we could listen to Minnesota funk and dance to uh, Prince. Um, wouldn't that be a good idea now, you know? And it was only for the, those East German kids that suddenly overcrowded the UFO, that kind of techno culture in Berlin developed a whole new logic, you know? Because at that point, it was not just a fad from last year that was on the way out. Now it's a point of uh, craving and of fantasizing and of... Um, uh, this new music that's so much different from anything in East Germany, you know, that's not about songs, that's not state control, that's not, uh, not the old, you know, not even the East German protest songs with the old guitar going blah, blah, blah. It was just the future. It was electronic. It was super Western and kind of that, all these dreams and hopes of these kids, you know, as I've said a million times, but it's still true, all these hopes and these dreams uh, and the, these like almost like children that, you know, uh, a door is open and there's like this magic wonderland behind it. And now it's all open up and the game starts all over and everywhere it's glittering and it's freedom and it's future. And it's all, and it's love, peace and it's, um, uh, progress and it's democracy and it's liberalism and it's no state control no more. Kind of the music got loaded with that, you know, and that's, you know. Um, um, I remember being in Berlin when the, just yeah. after the wall came down. I was there be just before, I think that was our night, which is not long before, and I was there afterwards and um, there was this very anti- the East feeling when people saw the people oh. from the East come come over in what they were wearing with these yeah, washed yeah, out yeah, denims yeah, and yeah. how they were with their, yeah. uh, you know, horrendous exactly. 70s haircuts and God knows what. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, the yeah, point, I mean, but the point of contact between the two people, as it were, of the yeah, two peoples yeah, between yeah, East yeah, and West yeah, yeah, was yeah. in these clubs, yeah. wasn't it? This was the point of yeah, contact. Yeah. This is where they actually did mix yeah. and where yeah. there was some exactly. relations started between yeah. East and West. And I think yeah. that was massively important. Uh, I, I agree to that 100%. And even 
it was a nice mix because like kind of the music and most of the DJs at the time came from West Berlin, but the energy, the people came from East Berlin. It was in their locations, Haus der Jungtalente and, you know, what they always say, you know, warehouses, empty ones in East Berlin. That's one thing I hate about like the, the West, uh, um, the Western look uh, at the techno revolution. They always say, well, they had these empty houses in, in, in East Berlin, you know, as if it was about empty houses, you know, it was full houses and these kids were the, uh, the, the East uh, Berlin kids. And it kind of, I learned from that, you know, because I saw this new kind of energy and, and kind of like, because this was what I was all about all the time, you know, kind of like free your mind, take the music, and do something wild, revolutionize it, make it more crazy, take the energy, take it over the top. And kind of like, I, I had a little, you know, like Berlin was, also West Berlin was one of the best places for it, you know, but it wasn't until the wall came down why it was taken to a whole new level. And this is about the people of East Berlin rather a than about the empty houses of East Berlin, you know? Because, mind you, there were lots of empty houses in West Berlin as well, you know? Because Berlin, West Berlin, you know, didn't have any jobs. That's kind of like what made West Berlin fun, you know? It would only attract more or less useless people like myself, you know? Uh, 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 and, uh, you know, all these gay people and people who didn't want to go to the army. Whereas when you're a West Berliner, you know, you would go to West Germany to be a dentist or whatever, you know, so all the reasonable people left and all the scum like myself would go there, you know? So, <laughs> so uh, kind of like that kind of, and, and okay, these people who were there kind of were like very arrogant. So like, as I say, when the war was up, the bad uh, word was Wessies from West Germany. Now, when the war came down, that you had a whole, for the West Berliner, you had a whole new tribe of bad people that was the um, East, East, East uh, Aussies, you know? So, but um, I wouldn't take that uh, personally against the Aussies because the West Berliners hated the Wessies as well, you know? So, so that's a little bit like English mentality, you know? Don't worry about it. We, yes, of course we hate you, but we hate anybody anyway, you know? <laughs> you know? Never mind, we hate, you know, never mind, we hate Germans, we hate the French, and we hate the Italians, and we hate the Spanish too, you know? <laughs> Back in that era, and this, you know, refers to that, you know, one of those nights that we went out and got completely smashed. Back in that era, the, the, when you went to a, a, a club, there was a, you, you went there for, uh, for the DJ, for the music, and to get completely smashed and to have absolute yeah, yeah, yeah. fun to the extreme. Yeah. And you went there with a sort of open mind about how the music would be. I don't think you had a sort of closed mind in any way. It was just like you're going to go with it and see what see what comes. But it was really about having fun and and um, you know taking drugs and just going completely uh, mad. And the best evening was the one where you went as wild as possible because they're the ones yeah. that you can talk about later. 
Um, yeah. On the night that we had, I just come to that and the difference to today. But on the night that we had, I remember being there with you and um, Fabian, DJ Dick, yeah. uh, your brother, and yeah. uh, we decided to have a competition who could take the most drugs in one night. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, that? What's, what's that the plan? I mean, was, was, I don't think it was I, a plan. <laughs> <laughs> it was an agenda. It was yeah. an agenda. Uh, I have to say, yeah. I won. I remember I won, and I had to go. You, you yeah, two, yeah, you yeah, two I went off home. Like, yeah. yeah, I know exactly, yeah, exactly. You were bowing down to yeah. me, and I had to go off yeah. to the wall and present a piece to camera for MTV at the wall. And I remember I had these dark glasses on, and I just couldn't get my words out. It took ages to do that something that normally takes about three seconds. Anyhow, I mean, we're talking about it like older people do who had that experience yeah, yeah. we're laughing yeah, yeah. we're finding it fun it's back then yeah. but it's we yeah. you know don't have any problem with it it happened there's a complete different mentality today about going to a club and listening to to music yeah. and going to see a dj can you tell me what the difference is well i guess there's a million differences and kind of obviously any nothing is everything becomes you know so like it's it's hard to say and for, even for me, you know, to uh, even judge, you know, there's a couple of things that I would uh, say. Um, well, kind of now it's changing, but for example, in the, in the, uh, after the 90s, how do you call this? I call it the zeros, you know. The, the noughties. The noughties, the zeros between 2001 and, uh, or 2001 and um, 2009, that era, era sorry, uh, people kind of like turned because, um, you know, the, these were the minimal days when, uh, and, and people sobered up and kind of even from the East German kids, kind of like the illusion of that complete wonder world, the glittering where everybody's free and happy and the drugs and the dancing and, and the raving society and the place uh, 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 behind the rainbow or whatever, you know, all of that kind of like had shown that is, you know, the world wouldn't change completely, you know, but but the same problems are still there and stuff. And people were kind of like frustrated, and especially when that 9/11 thing happened, the whole mentality changed, and with that came, you know, the the the. Um, the beginning of the Berkheim era and all that kind of like, no, we don't want to go naked on the love raid. And like Mott just said, we are, are going to be uh, one mankind because everybody's going to be here on the love raid and we're all going to get naked and dance to techno music and be happy about the future. Suddenly you had these people saying, oh, not everybody in the world loves us. Not everybody wants to be progressive. Liberalism might be a good thing for us, but other people would rather hide their women and dress up to, to, to the eyes, you know? And, and from that very same kind of mindset came a club like uh, uh, the club scene in, in that era that kind of suddenly was not about we're inviting everybody and we have this great rave signal to uh, um, unify us behind this idea. But suddenly it was like, 
we want to keep the world out. It kind of was a little bit again like the old West Berlin, who wanted to be a little world and not be bothered by the problems and not be bothered by Aussies or Vessies or by tourists who just want to be there among themselves and and be quiet and not even promote West Berlin because you wouldn't want anybody to come anyway. You you know, so it's kind of like that became the the vibe uh, in that decade to come and kind of like people, yeah, sobered up in a lot of ways. And I realized, you know, in that today's has changed again, but in that decade, people like us were like very much the the has-beens that would get, you know, that would like uh, go out and get drunk or, you know, and people, I, I, then I, on social network, you read, uh, oh, he had like three drinks at his DJ table. What what kind of working ethos is that, you know? It was yeah, serious. It, I, I couldn't believe it. I said like, uh, yeah, this kind of like, yeah, we want to keep... Uh, a good crowd, we want to be among ourselves, we want a DJ to do a proper job, well, and so on. That was kind of like, okay, Backheim was different. Backheim kind of still was the flag of, we want to get naked. But um, a lot of the techno culture and other ways were like more this kind of, uh, you know, ideals that, for example, Paul Van Dyke lived up to, you know, kind of like techno is a, a clean thing, and you are politically correct, and you uh, you want to do a positive music, and you dress up in uh, in fashionable stuff, and you go to a party and listen to a DJ, and um, you make yourself reasonable ideas about the future and plans, and you be that type of like straight straight up person, you know, um, um, and. Kind of like over the last kind of years, and especially now, um, well, after the corona times, I ha I'm hesitant now to say, but we, because we're still in the corona times. But when clubs kind of like first opened up again, I felt this energy, and it made me, for example, play a lot harder because, again, I, uh, I realized, yeah, wow, this is cool. You know, the, the, the kids want um, uh, want something more energetic and harder again because of all the pressure and all the energy that's gotten hold down for for such a long time now. You know, and that the logic for 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 this new type of energy kicks in. And I hope the next couple of years, you know, now I'll make a prediction again. You know, this kind of new energetic. Uh, and more again social and open up and meet everybody and be open to a lot of new beats and new people that I think and I hope but will once we get over that corona thing which I hope in one way or another we will at some point um, that would be my dream but also my prediction for the next 10 years you know okay Max listen yeah. It was great yeah. to see you again. It's great to see you looking so good and uh, so fit. And uh, yeah, well, especially, you know. low carb diet, man. Oh, is it? Oh, well, God. I think I need Back one. Back in the days, it was drugs. Now it's low carb, you know. Back in the days, <laughs> it was groupies. Now it's securities. But hey. <laughs> <laughs>
We'll never stop living this way. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Motz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.